2: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the people are mourning the recent death of Margaret Thatcher. Hero to everyone, but those who knew who she really was. (laughs) You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean.
1: Hello. You know, it strikes me that the British are so good at queuing that there's probably a very neat and orderly line of people waiting to dance on her grave.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're absolutely right. And Mr. Justin Sheeper. Hello. I decided not to call you the teen pop sensation because you have, oh, I missed one episode. <laughs> I, have mi- I have missed two episodes in our entire run. I missed one, and you threw me under the bus.
1: So At least you listened to them. There Luke, you have Luke it. Luke doesn't even listen to the little <laughs> episodes it. when he's Which not Which is why them.
2: we can make fun of him because Dr. Professor Luke Galen is not here. He's uh, being trampled by end-of-semester Um Falderall, uh, I suppose. So uh, he will be back at some point, though, when he deems us worthy of his presence. <laughs> Coming up in today's show, we've got Skeptic Sunday School, an interview with author Candida Moss, and a counter-apologetic segment as well as polyatheism and some <laughs> props to give out. But first, let's talk about shoes, shall we? Shoes. This is let's get some shoes. I this like suck. shoes. Um, wow, that is a throwback. That is the golden age of YouTube right there. Um, and I'm just gonna leave our listeners wondering what that uh what that's all about. Uh this is a story that comes to us from NPR. Uh atheist shoemaker loses faith in U.S. mail. Here's the deal. There is a uh, shoemaker out in Germany that, uh, makes, uh, an atheist brand of shoes. They are- <laughs> Sounds
1: strange, <laughs> it but, does. Uh, They're soulless. For those with the- yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, you beat me to it, Damn, Damn it. <laughs> ten um, seconds later. You have to plan into the soulless, You joke. plan
2: your puns. I planned that one. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, on the soles of these shoes are written, um, either Ich bin atheist, meaning I am an atheist in German, Or Darwin Loves, which is uh, pretty self-explanatory. And they've been having some issues with the U.S. mail. Because when they ship their shoes, they use a tape that says very proudly on it,
1: Atheist, right? It's just like a branding thing. Yeah. It's got their kind of logo. It's kind of in a cool, like Fight Club style font. It, it totally <laughs> is Fight Club, and, yes. And uh, you know, they've definitely put their energy into marketing this as a as a brand.
0: Number yes. one rule is don't
2: talk about atheist tape. Well, uh, the article goes on to say that in late 2012, this uh, uh, German shoe company decided to test a hypothesis. Quote, they noticed that some of their customers in the United States were experiencing delays and other problems receiving their shipments. They began to wonder why. Could it be the packing tape they used? The tape prominently featuring the name brand Atheist. So what they did to test their hypothesis, did I say hypothesis? Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> I was like, that sounds Christ. painful. <laughs> to test their hypothesis, uh, they decided to send two packages to each of 89 people in the United States. For each recipient, one package featured the, uh, special packing tape, and one used generic packing tape. All packages were shipped the same day, yet the atheist branded packages took an average of three days longer to reach their destinations. And while only one package from the generic tape, uh, set went missing, one of 89, nine oh, wow. of the atheist branded packages disappeared. That's statistically significant. Yeah, that's what I was (laughs) going to say. Listeners,
1: that is a statistically significant result. I mean,
2: we're dealing with a very small set, uh, two times 89, I suppose.
1: uh, So I've seen textbooks proudly declare things on smaller sample sizes than that.
2: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So – is there discrimination going on with the U.S. Postal Service? Now, I have to say, I always receive my monthly or weekly requests for more money from American atheists.
1: Um, so that, that's getting through just fine. Mm. They weren't pushing a conspiracy theory either. No. It was one of the cool things about the study was that they were, they were being good critical thinkers. Mm-hmm. They were saying, hey, look, there are other things that we couldn't test for. Uh, there might be other variables in play. It could be anything with a specialized tape could be held up. It could be that these are being caught up in customs. It could have,
2: yes, it may not even uh, be USPS. It could be because they're coming from Germany. This, right. There's a lot for a package to get through in that process.
1: Right. Uh, th- there's a number of different things that could be at play other than this uh, that they couldn't account for in their little study. But what was so cool, and the, em- the article that we're reading from emphasized this too, uh, what was so cool is just that they did it. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> they just, instead of, <laughs> instead of complaining yep. or assuming or anything else, they decided, hey, we're going to do what's within our power to do a study on this, which I think is really neat.
2: Yeah. And, and it's a testament to them, you know, really walking the walk the, and talking the talk. Yeah. I know. Shoe pun. But this is, you know, this is an atheist shoemaker and they're showing that they're not just here to, you know, um, Irritate people with their atheist footwear. Are
1: they? Are, uh, they're actually standing are, by their no,
2: skeptical uh, way of uh, looking at shoemakers things. are called cobblers, right? They were. So, I don't know if that's still an accurate. Would that be an term? atheist cobbler? That sounds delicious. A sweet dish with <laughs> yes. dead baby in it. Yes. Or something?
1: <laughs> but mm, uh, atheist cobbler going the long distance for the joke. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yep. But, uh
1: yeah I thought it was a neat article and uh and you know they're they're um they're not my style of shoes I'm not I I don't have the guts to Well be the ones that in the picture are,
2: are are white and but, white uh, shoes seem like a bad idea Yeah to I me. can't
1: rock that but nevertheless I thought they were they look pretty good Yeah. I mean the they uh if you're into that sort of thing mm-hmm. they are pretty stylish I even think it would be kind of cool to give this get these guys some of our business I'm not too into the Darwin Loves but, uh... The atheist shoes were looking yeah. pretty badass. Yeah. They're, they're Plus, if you were cool. to kick somebody in the head, thank yeah, you know, like military yeah. atheist, which we do not. always do, yes. right? Right. It yeah. would
2: leave that kind. Of of, it'd be backwards and in German. So it's yeah. you know you'd have to have a pretty smart yeah. guy who's. But, face let's face it, the people Maybe are we stepping on translated. others' heads
1: are usually German, anyways. So yeah. that's not going to come as a surprise. Maybe we can get an English version of the shoe. Oh, wow, we just lost all of our listeners in Germany. I'm not sure um, that's going to make the final cut. This is an evening recording, so. a bit
2: looser than usual. Luke's not here to keep us all grounded, because that's his job. So, you know, it's nice that they took a rational approach to uh, determining if there was in fact a problem and what the problem was, as opposed to, you know, um, doing something crazy like, you know, martyring themselves for a cause. That would be an insane thing for a person to do, wouldn't it? That's,
1: um,. Worst transition yes. ever, Dave. <laughs> No,
2: no, no. There have
1: been so many worse transitions than that. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned martyrdom, Dave. That Coincidentally. Was gonna, that was going to be facts. the subject of today's Skeptic Sunday School. Skeptic Sunday School is a segment we haven't done on the, on the show for a while, but it's intended to complete your education about religion, church history, and all the rest that maybe you weren't getting, uh, the skeptical side of that in your religious upbringing. And, uh, this one certainly applies to me. Uh, it's about the, uh, about those stories of, of the great Christian martyrs Mm. in the early church. Now, I don't know about you, you guys, Dave and Justin, but did you in your church upbringing hear much about martyrdom stories?
0: I remember uh, passing references to Christians and how tasty they were to the lions. Mm-hmm.
2: Of course. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely the the Christians being fed to the lions in the Roman colony. We would have little
0: like felt – uh, backdrops where we would place biblical figures on. I
2: do remember that. I was
0: always yeah, the first flannel- one the to put flannel- a lion graphs. right next to the Christian. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you had a flannel graph lion that you no, could no. put next to a. <laughs> no. I don't oh, know man. if you did. No. I,
0: I sincerely wish. wish See, I, like yeah. when
1: I was a kid, I would have thought that was like the coolest part of Sundays. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> man, when the well, I mean, the, bit the, that guy's head off. Yeah. Was... Well, Daniel
2: and the lion's den. I'm sure they had lions. Yeah, so they probably they did. did. I tend to think of of martyr talk as a primarily Catholic thing, and having been raised um, in a Protestant church, we didn't get stories of the saints, obviously or anything like that mm. the The one I remember is of course the story of Peter being mm. uh crucified, but he didn't want to die like Jesus because he wasn't worthy of that right so he was crucified upside down crucified that upside was the story down. I was
1: told, yeah. Uh, Actually, is that actually biblical in the book? Well, no, no, Bible doesn't have that. I got these martyrdom stories all the time. Did you really? Uh, Yeah, I remember in youth group in particular. I remember uh, one of our youth pastors telling this story about. um, Sometimes they were contemporary martyrdom. (laughs) I I was going to say. I think Uh, I probably got
2: a lot more of those, like the missionaries
1: who. Yes. Um, We heard this one about a, a church in Russia where. These two guys came in with machine guns and basically asked everybody to renounce their faith. And in uh, Soviet
2: the, Russia, martyr, kill you. Good, good
1: job, Yakov. <laughs> but yeah, then the story goes, of course, right? The uh, the cowards didn't say, didn't uh, stand for Christ, and the heroes did. Mm-hmm. And then the gunmen took off their masks and revealed that they were actually Christians, and that this was a test to see who was uh who was loyal and who wasn't and everyone was ashamed to What which, a terrible horrifying i know my, that my was my reaction yeah. i mean i was a christian i was a kid <laughs> oh but god. i was like that is god that's it's almost
0: horrible. like asking someone to sacrifice their own son to you and be like <laughs> kidding kidding <laughs> jesus abraham you weren't really gonna do that were you there's a bull right You're
2: over
1: like,
3: there dude calm down <laughs>
1: Yeah, I know. I thought that was a terrible story, but I remember, I remember my, my best friend at the time in the youth group, like, uh, I remember we, you know, we had our little prayer circles and we would sometimes confess things to our accountability partners. And I remember him. I touched myself. T- <laughs> yeah, that came up. I did a bit it again. Too. That, <laughs> just now. But, uh, nevertheless, I remember a friend coming up to me and, and just saying like, don't tell anybody this. But when I was hearing the story, I was thinking that I would have I would have said no. I would have denied Christ. I, I don't, hmm. I don't think I have that kind of courage. And I mean, he's, he's crying. He's working up tears. This was, I he mean, the, clearly the, the intent was, I think the intent was to get us to think about what we would be willing to sacrifice for the faith and yeah. using these as an example. Hmm. But, well, but it, now it strikes me as a really traumatic thing to put on people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, Jeremy, I'm sure
2: you remember, and, and Justin, you're a little bit younger, but certainly this would have impacted your childhood as well. Um, the Columbine shooting, yeah, Turn and out. that yep. was that was one of the big stories that came out of it. That um, yeah. the shooters would walk up to people and say, "Are you a Christian?" and if stuck they said the gun yes, in that girl's they, face, yeah. and um, even a
1: country western song about it. She said yes.
2: Yep. Now, I think a a large degree of that has been shown to be exaggerated, but incredibly inspiring story for a a kid at a Christian school in high school at the
1: time. You could see how these are powerful, right? They create a sense of solidarity. They Mm -hmm. make you reflect on what you would be willing to sacrifice. They're a great way of kind of galvanizing Christians together. They also have this weird side effect of making you think that you're going to be persecuted, Right. I mean, honestly, I never had to suffer for my faith in high nope. school unless you count a little bit of lighthearted teasing now and then. See, by I,
2: I never even – I went to a Christian right, school. So the only time I suffered that. was when I asked questions, you know, right. and, and that was when I, I – Get judged. But that idea of this is what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has a gun to their head and has to
1: speak up for Christ. That was the Christian ideal. Even Jesus himself says, right, you know, take up your cross and follow me Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, sell your cloak and buy a sword because the idea is you will be persecuted. Mm -hmm. If you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. And in fact, in my own high school experience, I experienced so little teasing, so little confrontation from my non-Christian peers. You kind of felt you were doing something wrong. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. I had many a time where I I confessed to you know, being
0: loud or bold. Uh, enough. Yeah,
1: I must not be promoting mm-hmm. the gospel enough because I haven't encountered anything, any suffering because yeah. of it. Martyrdom stories, stories of. Persecution in general have been used for millennia since the very beginning of the Christian church to promote zeal for the faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been used to inspire people to do noble deeds and they've been used to enforce allegiance amongst members of the church.
2: And lead to things like the Crusades and other such uh, actions or look, you you have to be willing to to give your life for your faith.
1: But our interview for today – with Candida Moss from Notre Dame University who teaches New Testament there. Uh, She's written a new book that advances the thesis that a lot of these martyr stories are in fact myths. Well that they does, were
2: does Notre Dame know she wrote this book? <laughs> that seems like she, she some, was immediately kicked out. <laughs> something they would be uh, not pleased with. No, uh,
0: from from reading the book you get the you get the idea that this stuff is fairly common knowledge yeah. in the academic and, and it's just about it's just about addressing that popular belief yep. that for the first three hundred years of Christianity that they were systematically and continuously
1: Persecuted. Her book is The Myth of Persecution, and we had a fascinating interview with her that we're going to share with you now.
0: Joining us by telephone is Candida Moss. Candida is the author of a new book, The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. Candida is professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at the University of Notre Dame. Candida Moss, thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts today.
4: Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: I found this book fascinating. I, I wanted to ask you, looking over your past publications, you've written several books on early Christian martyrdom. So what is it about the subject of early Christian martyrdom that, that piques your interest? And is the answer that you give to this question, is it going to be different as a scholar than as a, as a person of faith?
4: Well, I've been interested in martyrdom for a while, and I think when I initially got interested in it, I just found the stories so fascinating. These are great stories, you just want to hear them. And um, I just sort of wanted to tell people about how important ideas about martyrdom were in the early church. And then um, gradually I, I realized that sort of Today, people have a lot of misconceptions about what happened to early Christians, and I sort of wanted to correct those misconceptions, even though I really appreciated these stories. I would say that um, I initially got interested in in martyrs as a person of faith who was sort of drawn to these stories. And the reason that um, I wrote this book was because as a scholar, I felt that um, I couldn't allow other Christians to sort of um, perpetuate these myths about what had happened in the early church. So, yeah, there's sort of a difference between my scholarly interests and my interests as a Christian.
0: Well, we hear it all the time uh, in Sunday school and in political debates. You know, Christians are relentlessly persecuted because of their faith. And this has been going on since, you know, the very early years of the Christian movement, especially those first 300 years Uh where we're supposed to believe that, you know, apparently Christians were systematically hunted down by the Romans for roughly 300 years. So the, the question is, you know, uh, what is wrong with this view of history?
4: I think what's wrong with this view of history just, well, you know, initially it's just wrong. This is not what our historical evidence leads us to believe. Um, whenever we have Romans inaugurating these these brief periods of persecution, and we're only talking about really two brief periods, But they start with legislation that makes it clear that Christians were very comfortable and even flourishing in the Roman Empire. So the first reason why it needs correction is simply that it's wrong. But it's not just that it's inaccurate. It's not just that, oh, we've overblown this myth. The problem is that people still think this, and they think it in ways that affect how they act today. So, Christians today talk about themselves and think about themselves as persecuted because of this history of persecution. They sort of identify with Jesus, they identify with the early church, and they say um, that they're persecuted just like Jesus and the apostles. And um, when we look at the evidence and realize that the early church wasn't persecuted, then that has to force us to think about whether or not we're persecuted now.
0: For about Eight years under the Roman Empire, Decius, there was actual legislation in place that forced Christians to choose between sacrificing to the imperial cult or remaining loyal to Christ. Now, if they refused, of course, they would be uh, executed. Why was this legislation put in place? Uh, And couldn't this perhaps be rightly seen as Christian persecution? The first thing
4: I would say is Even that um, edict, the Edict of Decius, which for a long time we did think was persecution of Christians, all of our evidence for its implementation comes from a single month. So in terms of this legislation being in place for eight years, we don't know that it was in place for eight years. It all comes from one month. Um, And was this legislation that forced Christians to do something? Um, that they thought they couldn't do. Yes, it was. I think what we need to take into account here is what the Emperor Decius was trying to do was um, to get people to come back to the imperial cult. He was doing that in order to sort of fortify the empire, um, to please the gods and to sort of unify the empire so that it would be stronger in defending itself against attack. Now, in doing that, he wasn't doing anything new. This is what Romans had been doing um, for centuries beforehand. They had wanted people to participate in this cult. So this wasn't a religious innovation. And when he did it, maybe he knew, maybe he had a sneaking suspicion that there might be this small group of people that wouldn't be willing to do this. But it's not as if he was thinking let's go get the christians so i guess what i would say is this law is um unjust and it's particularly unjust from our perspective as moderns but at the time it was very acceptable and decius really had the moral high ground and it wasn't persecution because he wasn't targeting christians he was asking people to do something that they were already supposed to be doing under law
1: now, Jews were ex- exempted under these laws. Is that is that correct, because they were an older monotheistic faith?
4: To an extent, although archaeological evidence suggests that the Jews had negotiated sort of a compromise with the Romans, mm-hmm. but they did have special status because Judaism was a religion. It was this ancient religion, and the Romans knew that the Jews were very serious about their monotheism. They could look Mm -hmm. back at the stories of the Maccabees and know that they really didn't (laughs) want to cause trouble. At the same time, they weren't evangelizing. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't out to win new converts. Christianity was different. The Romans described Christianity as a Mm superstitio, and it's easy to say, oh, it's just a superstition. But what that word really meant in ancient Romans was it was sort of like a contagious, crazed Mm. um, position. So they they were sort of, Christians were spreading this contagious madness to other people. And so the Romans wanted to limit that, understandably.
1: Do do you think that had anything to do with them being such a new movement? Uh, Had they been as established as Judaism and had those years of history behind them, might the Romans have treated them very much the same way?
4: I think if if Christianity had been established, if it hadn't been trying to evangelize, Mm. and if it hadn't utilized this language of a new emperor and a new reign and a king who's going to come and change everything, that king being Jesus, then the Romans wouldn't have been interested in Christians at all. Hmm. But, But because they did sound like revolutionaries, Mm-hmm. And because they were actively out there trying to get other people to convert, and thus other people not to participate in the structures of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. I think the Romans had every reason to be suspicious.
0: Hmm. At the start of your book, you discuss the uh, the ancient Greco-Roman view of a good death. Uh, now, of course, no, not everybody agreed on the specifics of what was actually worth dying for, but... But could you talk about the common ground that people generally did share regarding their views of what it was to uh, die nobly or to have a good death?
4: Yeah, well, everyone in the intermold world knew that death was inevitable and that life was extremely fragile. And so they didn't sort of valorize trying to stay alive at all costs, the way that we do now. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they felt that, you know, if the situation demanded it, Um, You should be willing to lay down your life for something greater than yourself, be that your family, and that's something we could identify with now, but also your country and your God, and also just your principles. Um, These were things that it was worth dying for, that's how you really die like a man. And if you do die that kind of death, um, ancient Greeks and Romans and Jews all believed that you could expect to be remembered by others, to be remembered as a hero. And so everyone really valorized the good death and thought that this was one of the ways in which you distinguish yourself and be remembered.
0: Uh, Something I found interesting is that uh, you argue that the author of Luke's Gospel does some significant editing in order to portray Jesus' death as as in line with the the Greco-Roman view of the good death. What are some of the relevant differences between Jesus' death portrayed in Luke's Gospel and Jesus' death as portrayed uh, in Luke's earlier source material, uh, the Gospel of Mark?
4: Yeah, the the differences are very striking. So when you think about Jesus in Mark, Jesus is sort of weak and unsure of himself. So when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pretty much begs God um, that he be allowed not to die. Mark says that he's grieved Jesus in Mark begs the disciples to stay awake because he's upset. You know, he throws himself on the ground. He, he's distressed. There's no getting away from it. Right. Luke, Luke takes all of that out. So Luke has Jesus kneel down. Um, Luke asks the disciples to pray, but it's almost like he's sort of instructing them. And, um, and then when you think about the actual death themselves, in Mark, the very last thing that Jesus says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hmm. Um, in Luke, the last thing he says is, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's incredibly self-controlled.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
4: if you're just reading Mark, it sounds like he sort of dies in anguish. But in Luke, he's self-controlled, and it's almost like he wills himself to die, and then he does. Um, it's a very different kind of death. It's sort of self-controlled and reserved and respectable. Everything that Mark isn't.
1: It's it's the opposite of a humiliation, which is what you almost get from Mark, right? The suffering servant, misunderstood, humiliated up there on the cross, and then, yeah, cool, calm, confident Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. That's Um, right,
4: and and that's probably because Luke wants to sort of explain to his audience that Jesus really does die in the way that they admire, you Hmm. know? He's like the philosophers.
0: So it's to kind of expand the scope of the appeal of the Christian message in a way.
4: That's right. I mean, it's not its not about lying. It is exactly about that. It's about expanding the appeal. It's about giving your audience something that they understand. And the audience, as Luke's gospel, understands the sort of cool, calm, collected death. Mm-hmm. They admire that. They don't admire someone who's being humiliated.
0: Mm-hmm. In, uh, in your book, you talk about uh, how some early Christian martyr stories seem historically suspect because they seem clearly influenced by... Uh, earlier Greek, pagan, and and Jewish motifs. Could you give a a couple examples of that?
4: Right, well there are lots of places in early Christian martyrdom stories where the actual sort of script will come out of other early Christian texts. So martyrs will say things that Jesus said, they'll say things that the authors of the text have written elsewhere. Um, In certain stories, like the famous Passion of Perpetua, she does a lot of things that sound like she's a heroine from sort of Greek mythology. Hmm. So when she ascends this um, this ladder to heaven, she um, is told not to look back, a little bit like um, Orpheus and Ridithi leaving the underworld. Um, just before she dies, she sort of tugs down her garment and exposes her neck. And the Latin there sounds a lot like a heroine of um, Greco-Roman mythology who is killed in a very similar fashion. You have to sort of look at the text and look at the flow of these stories, but um, it's clear that early Christians are sort of not directly copying, but definitely emulating these stories from Greek and Roman mythology and from ancient Jewish folklore.
1: This has been one of the reoccurring themes for me as I try to study more about biblical history is recognizing sets of conventions that were used in ancient literature, like themes that the audience would have recognized and understood right away. But because we're not always familiar with this ancient literature, it doesn't jump out to us in the same way.
4: Yeah, that's right. It doesn't necessarily to us as modern readers. It doesn't jump out at us. But it would be a little bit like you sort of if you read a story and someone talked about the war on terror mm-hmm. you would know instantly that there is this reference to nine eleven and to terrorism. But even if the story was about something else, you would hear that. Right. You know? Um, or if I if I told you a story about um, in which someone said that they could not tell a lie, that would be very evocative to Americans. So, um I think that like, when you, when you look at them and you look at these stories placed alongside um, ancient Greek and Roman examples, suddenly they jump out at you and you realize, oh, this was really common. The death of Socrates was probably the best-known death in the ancient world. Everyone knew about how Socrates had been brave and had drunk hemlock. And so when you see allusions to that story in Christian literature, you know that the authors of those texts are trying to present their heroes as being like
0: Socrates. And so while some uh, martyrdom stories seem to have borrowed from earlier traditions, others seem suspicious because they seem identical to other contemporary uh, versions of the story. And like, so there would be, um, you know, some narrative and then there would be another narrative and everything would be identical uh, with the exception of the actual names of the characters
1: almost like a form letter? <laughs> Insert your, <laughs> your <mother mind. laughs> here, martyr's name here.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that occurs more and more the later you go. Martyrs become incredibly popular um, in the Christian era after um, Constantine has allowed Christianity to become the state religion. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on these scribes and priests to write up stories of local heroes, and they'd be given the name of someone and they know nothing about them. And, you know, it's hard work, writing. Mm-hmm. it's much easier to just copy out another story and change the names,
0: hmm. and
4: right.
0: that was what they did so a nice martyrdom template in a way
4: <laughs> that's right exactly
0: <laughs> uh, there's all there 's this very popular belief that uh about Emperor Nero that he you know used the earlier Christians as a scapegoat for the great fire of Rome in sixty four and and of course, as a result, many Christians were targeted and put to death in terrible ways. And this idea comes from Tacitus, the Roman historian, and he's writing in like one fifteen to one twenty. This is about fifty years after the fire. But your book gives us a few additional reasons why Tacitus's historical account uh, is 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 highly unlikely.
1: Yeah, and I should I should add real quick uh, that 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 this is part of what makes the story of Nero so credible to me. Uh, you know, is because it is written by Tacitus. It, it's not from. Uh, a Christian source. It's not from one even sympathetic to Christian sources. Tacitus says some very terrible things. So you would think that would be some of the most sound evidence uh, coming from him.
4: Yeah, it's funny. Sometimes people will criticize me for being skeptical of Christian sources, and they'll say, why are you so skeptical of Christian sources? Why aren't you skeptical of Roman sources? And I'll say, I'm, I'm skeptical of everything. I, I want to see the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's tempting to just believe Tacitus, because he's a Roman historian. But we have to treat him the way we would treat any other historian. Right. And it's clear that Tacitus does not like Nero. None of the historians like Nero. And um, when it comes to Tacitus' evidence, I think what's curious is he says that Nero blames the Christians. Which would mean that in the early 60s, the name Christian was sort of circulating widely enough that the Emperor Nero himself knew it. It's not just Christians calling themselves Christians, it would be other people recognizing them as such, so that even the Roman Emperor knew who they were. (laughs) But Christians don't even start using that word to describe themselves until the end of the first century. (laughs) So Paul, who was apparently killed by Nero, never calls anyone a Christian, never calls himself a Christian. So you have to wonder if it was really possible that um, during the reign of Nero that he knew enough about the existence of this small group of Jesus followers um, to target them. And we have to consider the possibility that Tacitus is retrojecting into the first century his own opinion of Christians, hmm. and that he's using that to sort of further condemn Nero, whom he
1: doesn't hmm. like. Obviously, Nero was not a pleasant fellow. Uh, <laughs> so it seems kind of <laughs> – feels bad exonerating him. I do have a hero who apparently has some Christian blood on his hands too, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, did you do any research on on him? Is, is, it, is it true that he really did Because he seems to me like such a compassionate guy, and and from his writing, from his meditations, you hear that he talks about everyone living in harmony. And it's just, it's always been a disappointment for me to think that he had his hand in some of that persecution.
4: Yeah, well, you're not alone. I will actually tell you that some of the later Christian historians also tried to exonerate Marcus Aurelius. Mm -hmm. And make it seem like he wasn't involved at all, because they really liked him too. Mm -hmm.
3: Um,
4: There were Christians who died... Um, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. And in fact, they died in Rome. Now, they weren't tried by Marcus Aurelius, so if you're concerned about him
3: personally, then I would say he might not have
4: known. Um, okay. They, they were tried by one of his teachers called Rusticus. Um, who he actually mentions in his writings as this amazing stoic instructor. Um, but in the Christian stories that rusticus appears, rusticus doesn't seem like that at all. He gets sort of angry and upset, um, not at all stoic. Um, which is really interesting because it seems like the Christian editors of this story are trying to sort of make Ruffica seem like he's not a very good stoic, not a very good philosopher at all. It's sort of fictional characterization. And this is the problem we have with so many of these stories. The Christians who are described in the story probably died. Mm -hmm. um, But um, the manner of their death, their trials sort of whether or not they were being persecuted, that kind of information we just can't know. Because the stories have been to an extent reworked or edited or some might say contaminated by the interests of later Christian authors mm-hmm. and editors.
1: So it's just it's just impossible to say.
4: Right. And I know that's not satisfying <laughs> but, but it's important because you know you can venerate martyrs without saying Christians are being persecuted. And given that this persecution stuff has had such a lasting impact in the Christian consciousness, it's important to admit what we don't know, and we don't know this.
1: Right, right. And I, I, I like that point that you make. And an, another thing that's sometimes not brought up in these conversations is that there were other martyrs uh, for other causes back then, too. And we were just talking about Stoics a moment, minute ago. Seneca was martyred. Uh, he was a teacher of Nero and apparently uh, didn't stay on Nero's good side. Um, you know, we have a lot of stories coming out from the from these ages of people who lost their heads defending a noble cause. These stories are deeply satisfying, and maybe you could address that briefly. Is you know, are there some positive things to come out of of these martyr stories
4: for people who read them? Yeah, I think that uh, these are stories of courage and heroism, of sort of well, I don't know if philosophers are ordinary, but of sort of regular people sort of sort of overcoming the limitations of human frailty in order to be willing to die for what they believe in. You know, and these are inspirational. I think my favorite Christian martyr is asked if he really thinks that um, he'll go to heaven if he dies. And he's a philosophical type of martyr, and he says, well, you know, maybe not, but it would be worth dying because on account of Jesus, he had learned how to live a good and ethical life. And every time I read that story, I sort of, you know, I pause because I think that's so admirable. Hmm. And I think there are lots of positive things we can get out of these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get that out of them whether or not every detail is true.
1: Right. With a lot of biblical studies, it's it's one thing to notice what this meant to the people who, who were reading them. And, 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 uh, why it was important in their development, um, and it's quite another – the question of whether or not they are accurate. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you're saying that, that we can learn and admire these stories for one reason and then yet see the dark side to them, um, which uh, unfortunately is all too common when you know kicking prayer out of the public schools becomes persecution uh, of, of the type, sometimes compared directly of the type that uh, are in these martyr stories. You have to start scratching your head and wonder if, if that's the message we should be taking away.
4: Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I mean, for, for a number of reasons. Um, the first is that that's just such overblown rhetoric when it comes to, say, kicking prayer out of public schools. And it completely avoids the debate, which is a debate about how we educate our children. Um, And recasting that as sort of like an apocalyptic struggle between good and evil makes it impossible to have reasonable conversations about things. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're taking language that actually does still have meaning. Mm -hmm. People are persecuted, just not in America. And um, sort of taking the language of persecution and applying it to sort of small political or social disagreements means that those stories really don't get heard.
1: Right, right. You want to see Christian persecution in this world? Look at, you know, the Coptic Christians in Egypt. Look at That's right. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's plenty of, you know, there's plenty of places, that Sudan, we could just start going down a list where Christian persecution is real and needs That's, to be addressed.
4: Yeah, and the reporting of that is overshadowed by the complaints of Americans mm-hmm. that they're persecuted. Hmm. So, it does a lot of damage, I think.
0: Uh, you write that um that many Christians saw uh, the death of Jesus as an ideal to strive towards to such a degree that sometimes they would go to extreme lengths to achieve it. Uh, One instance that you discuss in your book centers around a mob of Christians and Arius Antoninus, the governor of Asia in 185. Could you tell that story?
4: Right. This story comes us from a Italian who lived in North Africa, and he says that this whole group of Christians went to the governor's house and demanded that he sentence them to die for being Christians, because they wanted to be a martyr, or be lots of martyrs, rather. And um, he told them that if they wanted to die, they had ropes to hang themselves with. He just wasn't going to participate in this. and it's such an interesting story it demonstrates first that christians weren't being persecuted if there was any legislation against them he would have had to have killed them right right um but it also demonstrates that christians took this very seriously sometimes we'll hear that christians would never volunteer to die they would never do this they're always sort of passive innocent victims and it's worth noting that at the time when this happened, Christians haven't yet developed this sort of elaborate theory of suicide being wrong yet. So mm-hmm. it's not as if these Christians think that they're doing something wrong. They, um, they just really idealize martyrdom, and they want to die as martyrs.
1: They're, hmm. You could argue they're taking up their cross. I mean, I, I'm sure that's not exactly what Jesus meant. But yeah, you could argue that they, they, were, they were told from the beginning they need to emulate Jesus. and uh, That's right what better way to do that than to die for your faith?
4: Right. When it Yes. I mean, you know, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he doesn't mean by giving money to charity. He mm-hmm. means, take up your cross and follow me. And so, it is a, a sort of fairly faithful reading. I don't think that Jesus meant that you should seek out death like right. this, but you can see how people got there.
0: Considering that many Christians often see persecution as an intricate part of their personal Christian faith and of the broader Christian narrative. I'm curious as to what has been the reaction uh, from the faith community to your book.
4: Yeah, well, I think it it has been varied, shall we say. Um, Some people have said, I think you're absolutely right. Others have said... um, you know, we feel that we are persecuted and you are contributing to that. <laughs> and this is a betrayal of Christianity and you should resign. Um, wow. so, um, yeah, I mean, I get everything from you're the spawn of Satan <laughs> to, you know, um, great book. Um, so, you know, <laughs> and I definitely get more negative emails than positive emails, but, um, I hear that's the same for every project.
1: Yeah, well, which a reminder, a reminder to our listeners, take the time out and send emails to authors that you think are doing a good job because <laughs> they really do need that encouragement. I think it really does make a difference.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love this. I do have some really supportive fans, and they really do make
0: a difference. <laughs> Candida, thanks again for uh, taking the time out of your day to talk with us. Uh, About your excellent book, The Myth of Christian Persecution How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom.
1: And is there a website where we can direct our listeners to go to find out more about you and your writings?
4: Um, Well, uh, there's my university page, which is on the Notre Dame Theology site. I have a Facebook, an open Facebook page, and a Twitter account, as you know. So any of those
1: will do. All right. We'll put links up to those uh, at doubtcast.org. And, yes, thank you again for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thank you
4: so
3: much for having
2: me. All right. um, Let's turn now to some polyatheism. This edition of Polyatheism brings us to a follow-up on a myth we teased last fall. Uh, back in episode 100-something or other, I told the tale of the Norse goddess Eden, who possesses the apples which the other Norse gods used to remain young. As you may or may not recall, Eden was abducted by the giant Theyazi with the help of the mischief-maker Loki, who also subsequently saved her. As I explained in that earlier installment of polyatheism, Thayazi, in the form of a big bird was eventually beaten to death by Mitt Romney using the kind of cultural reference that gives these segments as long a shelf life as the Harlem Shake. <laughs>
1: By the way, I thought uh, we were asked to do a Harlem Shake video at one point, were and we, we? I responded that uh, no one could handle the amount of sexiness that would be in that video. Sorry, guys. I don't even understand what it is, but that's, I've never that's seen a it. Separate I just issue. Think about
2: it all the time. It's just it's random dancing. Anyway,
3: <laughs> the myth
2: does not end there with the death of Thiazzi, but instead brings us to today's tale of the god Njord. Njord is a god of the sea, fishing, wind, wealth, and crop fertility. How do you spell that? N-J-O-R-D. Okay, okay. Njord. I thought I was
1: hearing something njord, else. Yep, ex- njord. Yep, Njord. <laughs> you're
2: right to question it.
1: He's such a njord.
2: He's also, according to Snorri Sturluson, originally a real king of Sweden. But given Snorri's penchant for unverifiable euhemeristic claims, we needn't put, put too much stock in that How would you like to idea. have a
1: professor named Snorri?
2: Uh, Alternatively, Njord may originally have been a hermaphroditic Germanic god slash goddess, sometimes called Nerthus, or perhaps Nerthus was the sister and or wife of Njord. He is one of those veneer gods, um, a second pantheon of gods in Norse culture that probably comes to us from an earlier, more earthy culture that was subsumed by the more warlike and familiar Norse culture. After the war between the Vanir gods and the Asir gods, Nord and his children Freyr and Freya became part of the Asir pantheon sitting alongside the likes of Odin, Thor, and Loki. Mm.
1: Do you listeners remember when Dave never really did anything pedantic or <laughs> deeply researched on this show and just kind of shot from the hip and everything else like this? I mean this is – if anything, this is evidence that Dave is actually deeply researching these segments as, as he cannot help to bring up all the kind of minutia of detail of scholarship that People goes on. People want there. to know this stuff. No, I don't think they do. But, I think they uh, do. I think uh, they but, do. But, you know what? No, they, that's cool. It's I, a very, I, right. I respect that in you, Dave, and <laughs> okay. I, I want to encourage it to continue. At least way someone does. Find it cute.
2: Uh, by the time the giant Thiazzi fell to the Asir gods, Nord and his children were first – firmly entrenched in the mm-hmm. Asir Club, which meant that when Thiazi's daughter, Scotty, came looking for compensation, they were on the hook along with everyone else. Because they had killed her father, no matter that he had it coming, Scotty demanded two things of the gods. One, she wanted one of them as a husband, mm. and two, she wanted them to draw her out of her mourning by making her laugh. As I mentioned earlier, Loki was more or less entirely at fault for this whole business. So he stepped up to the plate, not to marry Scotty, of course, but to be the one to make her laugh. He accomplished this by tying one end of a rope around the beard of a goat and the other end around his own testicles. (laughs) The ensuing tug of war and accompanying howls of pain... From Loki, gave Scotty great joy, and she laughed and laughed because testicular torsion is hilarious. (laughs) If only YouTube had been around at the time, that video would have gotten more hits than that kid coming home from the dentist. Is this real?
1: I don't know that. You don't know that one? It's funny. Some some kid on his first trip. I think it's David Goes to the Dentist or something like
2: that. Yeah. Check (laughs) it out. super spaced out. Yeah. Uh, the gods also allowed Scotty to select a husband from amongst their ranks with one stipulation. She had to choose by looking at their feet only. She found the best-looking feet, which to my mind is a bit like saying she chose the smartest Fox News correspondent – all feet are gross. All Fox News correspondents I are stupid it. is what I'm saying. Case. It took a little Case work,
1: but I got it. Okay. All right. <laughs>
2: uh, thinking that the best-looking feet would belong to Balder, the god of beauty. But as the Norns would have it, the prettiest feet actually belonged to the sea god, Njord. Now, Njord was Alt-broomed. a great guy. Yes, yeah, absolutely, very (laughs) wrinkly, but she liked that. He was a great guy, and any lady would be lucky to have him, but the match between he and Scotty was far from a match made in Asgard, though, you know, literally it it was, but anyway. (laughs) You see now –
1: Njord one too.
2: <laughs> was a sea god and had some beautiful Scandinavian beachfront property. Scotty was a mountain goddess and preferred to stay there. It was all very green acres, really. Seaside living is the life for me. Ocean spreading out so far and wide. Keep the mountains. Just give me that beachside. The Scandies is where I'd rather stay. <laughs> I get allergic eating shellfish, etc. By the way, and the Scandes is actually what they they call their mountain range. Huh. I looked that up. I love that. Because, again, pedantic. Uh, they tried to divide up their time, spending nine nights in the mountains, followed by three by the sea. But the howling of wolves kept Nord up all night in the mountains and the screeching of seabirds kept Scotty up by the sea. Both were miserable and eventually they split apart. Scotty hooked up with the god of skiing. Perfect couple there. While Nord may have hooked up with his own sister or possibly had hermaphroditic copulation with himself. Yeah. While formal worship of Nord went out of style along with the other gods, uh, eventually, Nord continued to be thanked by fishermen for bountiful catches as late as the 19th century. So, there you have it. Nord, Norse god of the sea, fishing, pretty feet, and just one more god worth not believing in. And now we'll end today with uh, some props. First on our props list, we have uh, some women out in Egypt Who are standing up for themselves. Um, This comes from an article from Voice of America entitled Egyptian Women Reject Blame for Upsurge in Sexual Harassment. Um, Thanks to the uh, newly installed government in Egypt, women's rights groups are, are having a lot to deal with.
1: Yeah, who who would have guessed that introducing fundamentalist <laughs> Islam into the political sphere would result in a uh, epidemic of sexual harassment and violence against women. Well, I would have never predicted that.
2: And the thing is it, it may not be an upsurge necessarily in the incidence of this happening so much as it is that women are now coming forward about it, and well, they're talking about sexual harassment. And yeah, violence. I don't right.
1: claim to. Yeah, I'm not claiming that Egypt was like totally sexually cool uh, right, before this. But uh, but there have uh, the Center for Victims of Violence in yeah. Egypt has said that there's been a uh, uptick in incidences and reports of this. Part and they at least blame the conservative and patriarchal government. Uh, This is according to Elizabeth Elizabeth Arat, Voice of America. Voice of America, right? Uh, The article is entitled "Egyptian Women Reject Blame for Upsurge in Sexual Harassment." These are like notable politicians, Mm -hmm. even, are claiming that it's the women's fault for being harassed. Yes. For example, uh, the Salafist Sheikh Gamal Saber. Uh, who is the founder of the Al Asner Party. Uh Al,
2: The Ed Asner Party?
1: <laughs> uh, the Al Ansar. spunk. The Al Anzar Party. <laughs> Sorry. What else does she expect when she walks down the street with tight, revealing clothes in a provocative way? And what else can these men do? And then the reporter points out do? points out to them, so like are you saying it's natural for men to just rape women who mm, look attractive and harass them?" Uh, and he says, "Well, no, of course, this isn't natural, but he he adds though they the men are not entirely to blame
2: what see now, what I want to say here is, welcome Egypt to the twenty first century because they are Egyptian politicians are speaking like American judges.
1: Today, Yeah, right, I mean this – Right, it, I know. It, it's maybe, maybe that's evidence they've fully modernized. Is absolutely. That they, uh, is that they're coming up with this kind of garbage.
2: Day after day, we have reports of judges or police officers or politicians in America who say the exact same thing. And that to me is the, the astonishing thing of this yeah. story is it, that the, the Islamist state is using the same line on rape and sexual harassment that American uh, conservatives are well
1: the the egyptian center for women's rights is not going to have it and uh, they have uh they've come out on the street organized protests and at, at the, they're getting a little bit of lip service from the mother uh, the muslim brotherhood mm-hmm. here um so i mean it,
2: but really just lip service not realistic
1: change yeah but but at the very least you know we've been doing this a lot with protest groups in egypt mm-hmm. we we recognize we're realistic we recognize that they are far away from achieving their goals, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, you always have to have a first step, mm-hmm. and these women are doing it. Yes, and they have it; they are at least making a big enough impact that politicians have to lie to the press and pretend like it's and a pretend concern. that they care. Yep, and that is a start. Uh, huge, huge props to them. Uh, somebody else who is huge: <laughs> Roger Ebert. <laughs> Oh, my God. (laughs) Let's not do fat jokes. (laughs) He was not even that big. I'll just apologize immediately for making a fat joke about Robert Ebert. I I do – I respect the man a lot. Yeah. Uh, Not only because I almost agree with him universally on his movie reviews. I mean I I really – towards the end, Roger Ebert was like – my go-to guy to make sure that I didn't waste nine bucks on a movie ticket. Yeah,
2: you know, hmm. but uh, but more than that, um, no, I don't
1: get like why did he diss the Usual Suspects? That was a fine. Oh, I don't get that. at all. Yeah, that that's was a, a great that's movie. A great film. Uh, I don't. Maybe he saw it coming. I didn't and, like it, but sorry, he likes. He, he likes. Yeah, the you weren't. You stuff. weren't a fan. I was not a fan. No, no?
2: oh Justin. Sorry. You're young. Did, um, you, did you smoke weed before you watched it? <laughs> Maybe, Maybe that was my problem. Try it again. <laughs> and you won't see it coming this time. That's right. Um, but in the last few years, uh, at least that that we've been aware of thanks to social media, he's mm-hmm. really been using Twitter – very effectively, yeah. Um, in speaking out about a lot of social justice issues, yeah. yeah.
1: Now, now, Ebert was never, you know, he was never just a movie critic. No, he was. He was only the
2: way he was certainly thought of by yeah. many of us who who right.
1: And know. that's exactly the point. I didn't like like you, Dave. I didn't know that yeah. he had this kind of deeper side to him mm-hmm. until he went through his first bout with cancer. Yeah, and that I think that brought to a lot of people's minds like this. This guy's deep. And, uh, often um, taking
2: unpopular opinions.
1: I know for me, I noticed in, uh, what was it? I think it was 2011 where he published, I think it was originally on salon.com, hmm. this essay, I do not fear death, but now it's part of his biography. Hmm. And where he talks about, he, he comes out as an atheist. Yep. He talks freely about the fact that he doesn't believe he has an afterlife to go to and he talks about how he's trying to face death. I want to read a few quick portions out of this uh, essay of his. He says, I know it's coming and I do not fear it because I believe there is nothing on the other side of death to fear. I hope to be spared as much pain as possible on the approach path. I was perfectly content before I was born and I think of death as the same state. Kind of a very Epicurean Mm -hmm. thought there. Uh, he goes on to say, many faithful readers have informed me that it's tragic and dreary. It's a tragic and dreary business to go into death without faith. I don't feel that way. Faith is neutral. It all depends on what is believed in. I have no desire to live forever. The concept frightens me. I'm 69. I've had cancer. I will die sooner than most people reading this. That is the nature of things. And in my plans for life after death, I say again with Walt Whitman, I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles.
4: Very beautiful way,
1: very courageous way. I want to add one extra quote where he talks about kind of his life philosophy. He says, uh, O'Rourke's which has to be an Irish pub. I can't imagine what else that could be. (laughs) But he said it had a photograph of Brendan Behan on the wall. And under it was this quotation, which I memorized. I respect kindness in human beings, first of all, and kindness to animals. I don't respect the law. I have a total irreverence for anything connected with society except that which makes roads safer, the beer stronger, the food cheaper, and the old men and old women warmer in the winter and, happier in the summer. and then he goes on to comment on the quote, that does a pretty good job of summing it up. Kindness covers all of my political beliefs. No need to spell them out. I believe that if, that if at the end, according to our abilities, we have done something to make others a little happier and something to make ourselves a little happier, that is about the best we can do. To make others less happy is a crime. To make ourselves unhappy is where all crime starts. We must try to contribute joy to the world. That is true no matter what our problems, our health, or our circumstances. We must try. I didn't always know this, and I'm happy that I lived long enough to figure it out. A man with some very beautiful thoughts on life, did some good things, uh, and uh, we're going to miss him. But I, I, uh, I think he's, again, another great example of one of these courageous atheists. I also want to give props to that quote from Brendan Bean. Mm. Yes, uh, a relative of yours. Uh, yes, actually, a distant relative. We're going to have to have a show dedicated to this guy at some point.
2: It's an inter- it, he was the, the guy that uh, you bonded with Christopher Hitchens, far when, when I Hitchens, first introduced myself to writers. Christopher
1: Hitchens, he kind of cocked an out- eyebrow and uh, went, "Bean, huh? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I immediately had to fill the shoes of this epic guy <laughs> that I never could. Uh, Christopher Hitchens knew of uh, Brendan Behan because, first of all, he was a hardcore alcoholic.
3: <laughs> uh, you said he was Irish, right? Had a, yeah, had yeah, a
1: reputation uh, that he could drink anyone under the table. Uh, but in addition to that, he was also a, uh, he was an atheist. He, uh, he used the phrase "daylight atheist" as someone who would not, who would not keep his lack of faith secret and just talk about it in the pubs at night. There is a but blog. he would shout it from his rooftops. It's called daylight atheist. I wonder, yes, and I they take that they take that from Brendan Bean. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. Oh. And uh, uh, he's an interesting guy. He was a, he was a terrorist. <laughs> Yes. Uh, he, he was, uh, put into jail for, uh, plotting to bomb the docks at Liverpool. Hmm. Who's an
2: Irish freedom fighter.
1: Yes, but, uh. Dave
2: the Master of <laughs> I'm sorry, I may
1: be Irish and I've, I've, uh, I mean, I was raised, my grandparents, Irish Catholics, so, but I just don't buy into any yeah. of the Irish nationalism stuff, especially not the terrorism. Not
2: that we're saying the English uh, did them right. But we're I just can. Saying yeah, saying terrorism no, 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 is not a okay. But I
1: don't, I don't care, I don't care if they're my My uh, ancestors, I don't – terrorism is terrorism to me and Brendan Behan eventually saw that. He befriended some of the working class Englishmen and suddenly discovered that, hey, you know what? We have a lot in common and it might just be the other. the upper classes are using religion as a kind of wedge issue to make Mm. us think we're separate and to make Mm. us think that we're enemies and it was around that time that he rejected religion and started – he rejected violence. And uh plus just a hilarious guy too. He got arrested in Canada once for drunk and disorderly conduct and the police interviewing him said, what made you come to Canada in the first place? And he said, I saw a poster that said drink Canada dry and I took it, <laughs> I took it as a challenge. So we're going to have to do some oh. sort of tribute to Brendan <laughs> Behan on this show. Uh, when when
0: uh, when was he alive? When? 20th century. Okay, okay. He was
1: uh probably most well known as a playwright and popularizer of James Joyce. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh but uh anyways, not to steal uh the spotlight from Roger Ebert. I think he would have enjoyed sharing uh, it. With, yeah, with uh, Behan. You know, kudos on a life well done, Roger, and
2: uh and rather than giving him props, I think we yeah. should give him two thumbs up. <laughs>
1: Well played. <laughs> Nicely done.
2: And that's going to do it for us this time. In the meantime, check out our website, doubtcast.org or uh, freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Check out our YouTube page slash doubtcast, Twitter, Facebook slash doubtcast, and email us at doubtcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, challenges, etc., etc. And we will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.
4: To catch up on past
3: Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out
4: www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org.
1: Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.